Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Yes, it is. We are back. Like a bad smell, we are back. You thought you'd lost us. Not so lucky. Yes, it is another episode of The Long and the Short of It and a special one at that because we welcome Blair Athel to the podcast as our sponsor. And if you live in South Africa, Dale, Blair Athel needs very little introduction, doesn't it? Absolutely not because Gary Player, uh, that was his home for many, many years. His kids were brought up at Blair Athel and he had horses at Blair Athel and he always dreamed about the possibility one day of designing a golf course. And he talks about walking the property and saying, oh, you know, this would be a terrific hole. Yeah, and that'd be a terrific hole. And then he got the opportunity. Later on, they decided to, to move and uh, he got the opportunity uh, to design a golf course on his farm. And a terrific golf course it is. It's an absolutely wonderful golf estate. I mean, some of the most beautiful sites for homes you could ever imagine overlooking the river and of the golf course on the other side. It's magnificent. And a top 10 golf course at that as well. It is a terrific golf course. You know, it's much too long for me these days. But then again, uh, the Mashi course is too long for me these days. <laughs> yeah, Dale Putt <laughs> is too long for you these days. <laughs> my, my short game has become my long game and my long game has become my short game. <laughs> Proper test is Blair Athel, and uh, we're thankful that this episode of The Long and the Short of It is brought to you by the Blair Athel Golf and Equestrian Estate, the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. Located just three kilometers from Lanseria Airport in Johannesburg, Blair Athel has it all. World-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa, and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit BlairAthel.coza and take the first steps in creating your dream home. Come home to Blair Athel, an unparalleled living experience. Oh, Dill, you read that so beautifully. It was oh, like they paid you. you to do it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Dale. So, yeah, it's been a while between drinks and nice to be back. And lovely to be chatting to David Ledbetter today. You know, David Ledbetter, I've known for many, many years. As a youngster growing up in Harare, I first met him when I was playing on the tour and we used to travel to Harare. And uh, David, you know, was a, was a very good player himself. And, you know, people don't realize just how good he was. He uh, almost got onto the European tour. And the best thing that ever happened to him was that he missed his tour card, I think, by one shot. The second best thing that happened to him, he applied for the job as the club professional at South Broome Golf Club and didn't get the job. And those two things combined made him travel internationally, made him travel eventually to America. And, uh, well, he has made a living made an incredibly good living teaching the game of golf, but he's the first guy to really take it to the next level where he brought out books, he brought out training aids, he brought out videotapes, he taught some of the best golfers in the world, Nick Price, Nick Faldo, Greg Norman, and many, many others. And uh, it's just, it's a wonderful story because if you listen to him, and I hope you listen to the rest of this, it happened by accident. David, to tee off, how did it all start for you? Where, where and how did you get involved in golf when you were young and living in Zimbabwe? Watching you, Dale. That was the key. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's like it's interesting. I, I, um, 
look, I, I played junior golf to a reasonable level, and I, I just loved, loved the business of golf, shall we say. And so uh, I actually turned, I went to uh, college for about, uh, oh, maybe three months, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> and uh, so I just, you know, I was offered, a, offered an assistance job at the club where I was a junior member, uh, uh, Professor Kevin Quinn who uh, moved up from South Africa. And uh, so, so I, I just really enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the, just being around golf. I mean, I played all sorts of sports growing up. I mean, look, I, I wasn't in, you know, we had some great juniors, you know, Nick Price and Dennis Watson and Mark McNulty and what have you. So I wasn't quite in their class, but you know, I, I you know, I developed a reasonable level of play, uh, but I, I really enjoyed just the business of golf and, and really enjoyed the teaching side of things. I mean, I used to hustle for lessons and, you know, just make a little money to be able to go and play. And, you know, I played a, a few tournaments on the, on the South African tour, not with any great success, but, you know, I, I you know, so I was, I was a reasonable level of player, but, uh, you know, I remember obviously your brother, John, down at Bulawayo and, uh, you know, I got very friendly with George Harvey and, you know, we, we had a really an unbelievable golf community really up in Rhodesia as it was then, you know? And so, you know, obviously then you, you bring in the likes of sort of Simon Hobday and Muscammon and, you know, all, all the guys from the past, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was really interesting. Peter Makovic, um, well-known golf architect now, obviously. So, you know, I, I remember, I always, I always tell Gary, I remember we, he had a, he had an exhibition at Royal, and uh, I, I was one of the kids that they chose to sort of, uh, you know, do this and do that. And I always remember, you know, that Gary got out of the car and he had his big Dunlop uh, practice bag. And, you know, it was bigger than me almost, you know. And he says, young man, he says, you know, mate, he says, I never carry heavy things before I play. You carry this to the, to the practice tee for me, you know. So, you know, I just loved the game and, uh, you know, I just loved being around it. And so... You know, I decided, you know what, hey, if I, I was going to try to get as good a player as I could be, but I obviously thought that, you know, whatever, if I could be a club professional or I could be teaching. And so uh, I, I got into that side of it. I actually went to the States in the mid-70s just for a couple of teaching seminars. And I thought at some stage, hey, this would be a great place to come back to uh, at some stage because, you know, golf obviously over here, as you well know, having played over here, I mean, it's a big thing. And so... You know, and the fact that the second week I was here, I went to Pinehurst. I thought, man, if this is golf, this is what I want. This is where I want to be, you know. Anyway, so I got a, a couple of teaching diplomas and, you know, and, uh, you know, got a lot of the, the latest Munson wear clothing. And so I went back, you know. So I was a big deal when I went back, you know. I mean, here's this guy who's like, what, what are you doing? You know, dressing like this and, you know, probably the odd American word in there. And so then I actually went, you know, I mean, kind of long story short, I mean, it, obviously they had some problems up in Rhodesia back then. And I actually went back to England because where I was born and I got a club job. Uh, I actually went to, I went to tour school at, at Fox Hills, believe it or not. And that was the same year Sandy Lyle actually got his card. So it, I actually missed my tour card by a shot, which, which actually proved probably a, 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 a good, it was a good tournament to miss, the, uh, to miss it by a shot, I suppose. And uh, it sort of made up my mind and I, I got a, actually got a club job up in the Midlands uh, near Northampton. And so I was there for a couple of years. And then I had an opportunity to uh, go out to the States again uh, through a guy I used to, you know, sort of work on my game with, you know, well-known, obviously, in South Africa. And he was well-known in, in, in America at that point, too, Phil Ritson. So Phil sort of helped me get a 
get a teaching job up in Chicago and I was up there for a couple of summers and um, and then I actually went down to sort of Florida and sort of opened a, a, an academy and that's when you know Nick Price and Dennis Watson I mean they used to sleep on the floor we used to have a it was like the YMCA at that stage you know Jeff Hawks I remember Gavin Levinson McNulty I mean it was like sort of home away from home sort of thing and so that's really how my sort of career started and obviously the success that those guys had and um, moving on obviously then to sort of you know Nick Faldo and Ernie else and so it was uh, you know I, I pretty much was interesting I mean I suppose brethren I suppose if you want to call it that the fact that I you know hung out with sort of uh, you know all my South African and Rhodesian friends and uh, and they had success straight away I mean it was amazing I mean you know Nick won the World Series Dennis won the World Series uh, David Frost won the World Series, Fulton Allen won the World Series, all when I was coaching them. So I don't know, we had a World Series thing going. And uh, and obviously, you know, starting working with Nick Faldo and for the first couple of years, it wasn't, it wasn't going so well from that standpoint. But then when he started to have success, you know, my name sort of uh, spread and, uh, you know, we sort of wrote books and did open academies and it was just one of those things that it just happened it wasn't something that I'd planned on and uh, but it was it, it it's been a fun ride I, you know after all these years I you know obviously I look back and say hey would you have changed anything yeah probably not there was a story Simon Hobday and Moose Gammon used to tell me that that you used to walk into the golf shop there at Chapman and you'd have a you'd have a golf digest magazine with an instruction article and and you'd start dissecting it with the two of them is that true? Yeah, that, that's pretty much true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, I was, I don't know, I was always into the theory of side of things, you know, and I mean, I had, you know, books. I mean, I've still got a great collection of books, which actually go back to the 19th century, believe it or not. So it's one of my hobbies, sort of collecting old instruction books. And it's, it's funny, Dale, you know, you, as much as things change, you know, with equipment and players and what have you, <laughs> things have still remained the same in many ways, you know. And so, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, Simon Hobday, as we know, I mean, look, you could you could do a movie on him. I, you know, I hope they do it some stage because I mean, he's one of the funniest guys and and one of the one of the great ball strikers too. You know, I mean, all all, all us youngsters at that point used to sort of just sit and watch and be mesmerized by the way, you know, he struck struck the ball, particularly with his irons. And I mean, so he, I mean, he was obviously the unbelievable character. And but yeah, I was uh, quizzing people. Uh, you know, I used to you know, cut out stuff out of magazines and what have you. And I was, so I was always interested in the swing and the technique side of things and how it worked. It probably hurt me with my own golf game because I became a little too much of a perfectionist. But, uh, you know, from a standpoint of understanding a little bit more, uh, I mean, you know, they wrote a book years ago called A Search for the Perfect Swing. And, you know, I was, you know, I, I was sort of consumed by that book about how to try to create this perfect swing. And we, we know now, look, I mean, if I knew, if I knew then what I know now, there's no such thing as the perfect swing. I mean, you look at all, every every swing, there's a little more similarity maybe today than there was years ago. But uh, nevertheless, I mean, every every swing is different. And I think I think ultimately, you know, to become a good coach and a good teacher, you've got to understand the individual and the person that you're working with. And that's 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 key. And so because we have to communicate in different ways. It's all about, say, communicating maybe similar things and in, in, in different ways, shall we say, to players. So they, they actually get that sort of aha moment. You mentioned that uh, not getting your tour card being a blessing in disguise. Another mm. blessing was 
and, and this is a story I've heard, is that you try to get the job at South Broome Golf Club, which is in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. And right. you were very disappointed that you didn't get it. But again, it turned out to be a blessing. Oh, it, it probably did. I mean, you know, I, look, I applied for a lot of jobs. You know, you know, I remember, I mean, I actually, when I went, I went down to South Africa and I sort of, you know, I wanted to play and I thought, well, I got to get a job. And I, actually, you know, I actually got a teaching job with, uh, at Houghton. So I was at Houghton for a while. And then, you know, a good friend of mine was Reese Hughes, you know, ran, you know, obviously the pro shop and what have you. And then, you know, I actually got a, I got a job, which uh, was interesting for me was at John Foster Golf Club in, uh, in Brackham, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any clue where Brackham was at that point, but it was, uh, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting because it, it enabled me to get out on my own and do my own things from a teaching standpoint. And uh, so I had sort of free range there. And I, you know, I was, I mean, I developed my teaching really not, not with good players. I mean, I mean, these days, I mean, you get a lot of young coaches I and mean, then they just want to go in and start teaching tour players. You know, they've got a track man. It's like, okay, well, let's go and, let's go and help this guy. And back then, I mean, you know, you're working with, uh, you know, Mr. Smith and Mr. Johnson and, you know, they instructionally challenge you trying to help to get the message across. And so it, it sort of uh, expanded my knowledge and understanding of how to, how to teach. And I think that, you know, that I suppose more than anything, I mean, I had, you know, I, I mean, we didn't have video and all that sort of stuff back then, you know, so it was a, a case really of me sort of using my eyes and my instincts to sort of, uh, sort of help people along the way, you know, I mean, probably if I look back now, some of those lessons I gave back in the day, I mean, there's probably, you know, I mean, I probably just read Ben Hogan's book talking about supernation and, you know, Mrs. Johnson probably couldn't supernate too well, but, uh, but, <laughs> so, but by the way, you know, by the way, I met somebody the other day that asked for their money back. If I, when I spoke to you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure much of other people out there. Yeah. Don't give them my address. <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned Phil Ritson and I mean, Phil, you know, he was a lovely, lovely man. He was a legend. Um, he was. Of, of, of golf instruction. Um, you could learn so much from him. And, and you did. You learned a lot from him, not only about teaching, but also about marketing. That, that's true. Yeah, Phil was a real marketer. You know, I mean, he was a great teacher. You know, he wasn't always there when you showed up because he might have been at the, at, you know, at, at the races, you know. But, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a gambler extraordinaire. And, uh, but, no, he was a great guy, very knowledgeable. You know, he was way ahead of his time. And, you know, when he came over here and he became the, the golf director at Disney World in Orlando. I mean, I actually ran the academy or the studio, you called it back then. I, I ran it on his lines because, I mean, he I mean, he used to get tour players you know, coming from all over to see him. And uh, he was really, uh, I say, he, he was a genius in many ways. And I say, he, was, he wasn't the maybe the best businessman, but he was a great marketer. He could have sold, you know, snow to an Eskimo, that's for sure. And so he got into a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, he he left his mark. And he certainly left his mark on me. I mean, he helped me tremendously. I mean, just, you know, I used to go down to Kalani and take lessons from him, you know, when I was up in, up in Rhodesia. And so, you know, but he was just one of those guys that, you know, had a really good understanding of the golf swing. I mean, he was, he was obviously a good player in his early days. I mean, and, you know, I mean, if you speak, if you spoke to Phil, I mean, he taught everybody in the world, you know, including <laughs> Gary and everybody else. And uh, I mean, he, and he might have obviously had some influence there, but uh, yeah, he was a, he was a great guy. He, 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 he was a big influence in my uh, teaching career, for sure. 
you mentioned some of the Zimbabwean pros and, and uh, you know, obviously wonderful players. I want to give you the names and just say something that comes to mind, a memory that comes to mind from each of these pros. I'm going to start with Teddy Weber. Meticulous, very meticulous. He was, uh, you know, I mean, I remember watching him practice wedge shots. I mean, it's like, you know, he actually one of the, one of the first guys I saw, he sort of set up targets like, at, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 meters and what have you. And he, I mean, he'd be there all day practicing this. This was up in Amtali, in fact. And so, uh, yeah, really, I mean, nothing flashy, just one of those guys that just sort of like, you know, just, yeah, you, you add up his score the end around. Okay, 68. Boy, that looked pretty easy. So, yeah, a meticulous sort of player, very tidy player. Mark McNulty. Mark McNulty. Okay, well, Mark, you know, we, we know Mark, you know, was, uh, I always remember the story with Mark uh, one time at a junior event. He had a bandage around his left wrist, you know, and the next day he came out, he had a bandage on his right wrist. I think he forgot which wrist to put it on, you know. I mean, Mark was always one of those guys, I mean, he, once again, you know, sort of a Teddy Weber type of player. I mean, just marvellous short game, wonderful putter, as we know. Um, I always remember that story where uh, he was playing um, He was playing an exhibition, I think, with George Harvey, maybe Dennis Watson, Nick, I think, uh, Chapman, I remember. And it's like, I remember Hobday went over and took out his uh, famous bullseye Krishna putter out of his bag and snapped it over his knee. And Mark Nitty, you know, went apoplectic there. And, uh, you know, Simon is stuck in a sort of a, <laughs> he's stuck, stuck in another putter, you know, which was obviously similar to his. <laughs> and so, but I mean, yeah, I mean, that, the, the putter, I mean, with Mark, I remember, I mean, even as kids, I mean, he used to use one of those, those pings. That, I mean, it was really pinged. It was like a sort of a block on the end of the shaft. And, you know, he's just, he always had his finger down the shaft. I mean, he played, played out in the country districts, played on sand greens, whether that maybe developed his putting shot. But I mean, just once again, just a, not a never overpowered a golf course, um, but just, I mean, you know, Mark didn't play really the regular tour over here, but my goodness, when he played the senior tour over here I mean, did, in the States, did he do well? And so we, not, you know, look at his record, even in Europe. I mean, just one of those players, just week after week, you know, he's always there. And uh, yeah, just a, you know, and Mark is Mark. And as far as when I, what, what I mean by that, I mean, in a kindly way. I mean, yeah, we, we were, you know, we're good friends and we he used to stay with me a lot. And uh, he was one of those players that I think that um, was very underrated, but uh, just a, just an all-round great player. Moose Gammon. Moose. Uh, well, Moose, you know, he, he was one of those, I mean, he turned pro fairly late you know he was a, a cigarette salesman he and peter makovich used to work for rothman's back in the day you know and so uh, moose was uh, just i think you know what was the when he got into teaching a lot and i think his theory was cock and turn so you know he was known as cock and turn you know cock, cock the club cock the wrist and turn you know so but uh, once again you know he was he was a player that was a uh, yeah, he was a fine amateur, you know, played really well in his, in his uh, had a great amateur career in, in, in Zim and just, you know, was a, was a workhorse, I would say that. You know, I think he won the, the, the Welsh or the Wales Open, as it was called back then, uh, in Europe. So, you know, just a steady performer and nothing flashy, but worked really, really hard in his game. Man, he was a hard worker. He used to practice hour upon hour upon hour. And so, uh, and uh, obviously had a, had a, had a nice, nice career and then, Obviously, took became a club professional subsequent to that, and 
yeah, we're going back in the days now. I'm trying to remember all these things. But, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a player that uh, you sort of look at and say, you know, steady, steady Freddy. That's what people call him most. Dennis Watson. Okay, so Dennis, yeah, very good friend of mine. I speak to him a lot. You know, uh, unfortunately, blighted by injuries. But Dennis was an unbelievable ball striker. I mean, he really was. And, you know, he was playing a tournament in South Africa, and then he broke a bone in his wrist. And it's sort of, that sort of started the sort of a whole chain of events, you know, where he sort of had shoulder surgery and neck surgery. And it's like, oh, my goodness. So he was, uh, you know, his career was sort of cut short by injury. But what a good... What a great ball striker. He won the World Series. He shot 62 at Firestone uh, in the third round, I think it was. And so, I mean, just, um, you know, Dennis, uh, very, very good junior player. I mean, good all-round sportsman, played a lot of different sports. And, uh, you know, actually took his game even to the senior level. He won the senior uh, PGA at, uh, at Kiowa. And so, you know, he was always known. I mean, he won three tournaments uh, on the... On the tour, he um, was uh, one of the first guys. Actually, yeah, who he brought to prominence was the, the well-known sports psychologist, Bob Rotella, because Dennis was one of the first guys that worked with Bob Rotella. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I always remember, I remember getting his uh, tour card in, in Orlando, where we were based near Orlando, and he got his tour card at Disney World. And so, but, and he really, you know, from the very get-go, he was, you know, Dennis was a, Dennis was a very, I suppose back then you could call him cocky or arrogant, but he was very confident, you know, and so it was like he, uh, and he's, he's mellowed a lot now, I think after, probably after eight kids or whatever, you mellow quite a bit, but, uh, so, <laughs> so, but uh, you know, he's still, still, a, still a, a junkie for the swing a little bit, you know, he's uh, works, his, his son's a pretty good player, so uh, one of his sons. Uh, one of his many sons, I should say. And so, uh, you know, Dennis, yeah, I mean, you know, he was obviously, it was funny, you know, obviously Tom Watson was the king for the most part during his his era. And he was always considered the other Watson. But uh, Dennis had some great results and some, I would say it was just, just sad, really, that injury sort of cut short his career. George Harvey. So George Harvey, I mean, he, he was a, a fine amateur. You know, obviously, I think he worked for your, de- uh, for your brother down at um, Bulawayo Golf Club. I mean, I met, remember met George. I mean, he was just really, really good amateur. A lot of people don't realize he only had one eye, you know. And, uh, and so he was, uh, I mean, magnificent player, really was. I mean, had a, if you look at, I mean, one the, the, what, the South African stroke play, I believe. I'm at a stroke play. And, uh, you know, just really didn't wasn't able to sort of really fulfill his potential. I mean, from a playing standpoint, I mean, you know, obviously he, he and Nick and Dennis Watson and Tony Johnson, they were, um, you know, they were the stars of the, the amateur world when they were younger. And George, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he turned pro and then he got his amateur status back and, uh, and then he turned pro again. I don't know how many times you can do that, but, uh, but he did. And so, uh, yeah, it was just a, just a great ball striker. I mean, really, really was a great ball striker and, uh, you know, had some, you know, had, had a lot of success, really, as I say, especially in the amateur world. And as I say, it's just sad, really, that he probably, you know, got married young, had kids. And so he just didn't fulfill his potential as a player. But, uh, you know, I know, uh, as I say, I mean, he was highly regarded. I mean, you know, if you speak to Nick, as that man, he was one of the best amateurs. In fact, you know, he was one of the best amateurs in the world at one point, no question. Finally, Tony Johnston. 
Tony Johnson, the, the termite, as Simon Hodder used to call him, you know, he said, hey, you, you take so long, the termites are going to eat your wooden tea there, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, you know, Tony is one of those guys, you know, this Ovis, uh, as he's affectionately known there as, you know, because every time he was a junior, he said, no, I want to hit that one Ovis, you know, over, you know, so he called him Ovis. And so uh, he, you know, I mean, I didn't know him really well uh, in our junior days because he was in Bulawayo. We were in Salisbury, but or Ferrari as it is now. But you know, just a just a grinder. You I mean if he was a grinder? He made the most out of what he had. You know, you you wouldn't call him the most talented ball striker, but I mean, man, he could get the ball in the hole, and he had you know wonderful bunker player. Um, and you know, he, he just had the you know had that sort of sort of cheek if you will i mean it's like you almost sort of you know it was almost like hey i'll show you up I'll, I'll show you what i can do you know and so so yeah he made the maximum out of the minimum i don't mean that in a nasty way but i mean i mean he probably would admit himself he you know, didn't have the ball striking talent of nick nick price say and uh, or dennis watson but man he could get the ball in the hole and uh you know and one of the one of the funniest guys <laughs> around that's for sure because to say he's you know hilarious company Obviously, I've I've left out Nick Price, but I wanted to I wanted to combine Nick Price and Nick Felder, the two Nicks. I think who who probably were very instrumental in in your career. So you know, let's talk about the two of them. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, they were they were pretty good friends in the early days, and then things didn't you know they didn't uh, have such a good relationship as time went by. But you know, look from my standpoint, I mean. Uh, look, I mean, Nick Price, I mean, he's always, he was a childhood friend. I mean, I remember us riding bicycles to the golf course together. You know, I mean, I'm a few years older than, few years older than Nick, not much. But, and then, you know, his brother was very friendly with Tim. And so, uh, you know, our parents were friends and so on. And so it was, I've known Nick. And so he was sort of a, you know, I mean, when he was uh, playing in Europe and, you know, I'd speak to him somewhat regularly and I said, man, you've got to get over to the States. This is where you need to play. And so he, he didn't need much tempting, really. The fact that he didn't love playing in Europe, he didn't like the cold weather uh, more than anything. So when he, um, you know, they, I enticed him over here and actually that was 1982, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, 81, I think it was, something like that. But yeah, it's going back a long time now. But he, then we worked really hard. And it was like interesting that he nearly won the uh, Open in 1982. He should have won it, that's true, when Tom Watson won it. And so he was leading by three with about five or six to go. And so he finished second there. So that's sort of, you know, and he, I mean, we worked really, really hard. I mean, you know, you know, having been over in the States quite a bit, I mean, how hot it gets in Florida in the, in the summers and stuff. Oof. But, you know, Nick, we'd work at it. And we had a lot of fun too, because he said he'd stay with me. And we, uh, say, had a lot of the South Africans and Zimbabweans coming over and staying. And it was, uh, it was interesting. And so, but Nick, you know, he, uh, I mean, he was such a, he loved to play. I mean, but, you know, Nick loves life too. And I think it was interesting when I, when I look at Nick's career, I mean, he won the World Series in 1983. So it gave him a 10-year exemption. It almost sort of gave him license to sort of, I won't say take it easy, but it was like, you know, with a couple of years to go, you know, it was like, you know, I mean, the time goes by quick. And, you know, he, he played well. He, you know, he did okay, but he didn't sort of set the world alight. But then with about a couple of years to go, he sort of figured out, well, you know what, I think I better get moving here. And my goodness, did he get moving? And he became number one in the world. Actually, when he became number one, it's almost like he took his foot off the gas a little bit after that, because it's almost like there were so many demands on his time 
you know, I mean, it's cut into his fishing and everything else, you know, so it's like, <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, I've, I've been there, done that, you know, and it's like, and so, you know, you could see he actually took his foot off, took his foot off the pedal a little bit there, but, you know, I mean, obviously wonderful ball striker. I mean, I remember Johnny Miller, I think we were at Bay Hill and Johnny Miller, you know, Nick always had that um, sort of customary sort of steep look on the backswing and then shallowed the club out. He said, man, I just love that. That's, that's how I used to swing it. And, and there was a certain strike about the ball that Nick had that uh, even Ben, the great Ben Crenshaw said, man, he, you know, he's the closest thing I've heard. I've heard, he said, you know, because you hear the strike, he said, to Ben Hogan. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's how good Nick was. I mean, he was a, he was a streaky putter. And uh, it was, you know, he'd, he'd never practiced his damn putting. I always said, get on the putting and work. Oh, okay, so you go for five minutes. Okay, I've got it now, thanks. And so, so it was always about ball striking with Nick. And uh, I mean, he, you know, he won three majors in his career, maybe should have won more. But, you know, he, he was just, just, just a great ball striker, great player, more than anything, a great guy, you know. So um, we, you know, we've been friends and still friends for, for so many years now. And, uh, you know, his major now is the uh, father's son. So that he plays with his son Greg, you know, <laughs> so that's his major. But he still loves to play. I mean, you know, he's he, you know, he lives down in West Palm Beach and plays a lot, you know, with Charles and Louis and what have you. And so he, he just loves to play. And even though he doesn't like, you know, he, he, he doesn't bother to go out on the Champions Tour now. Obviously, he's completely exempt. But he says, no, nah, I just don't enjoy this, like you know. And so, what has he got to prove? You know, it's like, I mean, the Champions Tour has given a lot of people a sort of a a new lease on life. But with Nick, it was like, he did it for a while, you know, one, I don't know how many tournaments he won on the Champions Tour, but it was almost as if, nah, no, nah, this is not quite the same. So, so he needs motivation, but uh, yeah, he still loves to get out there and hit balls. He still, still sends swings to me and says, hey, what do you think of this? You know, and I look at it and say, hey, SOS, you know, same old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Faldo? Well, Nick Faldo, you know, he was, he's a bit of an enigma. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't Mr. Popular with all, with all his peers, that's for sure. But, you know, we, we got on really, really well. I mean, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I think he was looking for something. This was like, I think he won, he won Hilton Head in 1984. And then he actually, I saw him at Sun City uh, at the end of 1984. And he, and he said to me, he said, hey, just take a look, see what you think. And this was, uh, you know, coaching and players were starting to become a little bit more popular. You know, Hank Haney was working with Mark O'Meara and, uh, and uh, they were having quite a bit of success. And so he, uh, so Nick said to me, he says, hey, listen, see, I might want to come and see you at some stage. And this really was actually on Nick Price's recommendation. You know, I mean, I mean I'd met Nick years ago. Um, well, when I say years ago, I mean, prior to that, I mean, the first time I met Nick, we were playing at, at Victoria Falls, believe it or not. And uh, he was Warren Humphrey, was his mind. I think George Bloomberg brought them over. And uh, anyway, so Nick, Nick had just turned pro. He was pretty young, I think maybe 18 or 19 or something. And so, you know, I saw, I mean, obviously he was a big strapping guy. And, uh, but, you know, he never really hit the ball that far for his, for his build and never was known as a long hitter essentially but I mean but he was a he was a worker he was a grinder I mean geez he grinded and he worked and so when he he came to me in 85 I think it was at Muirfield Village and said to me 
okay, listen, I want to start working full time. And his exact words were, throw the book at me. He said, my major goal is to win the Open. He said, I, I just don't think I could do with the ball striking that I have right now. And, you know, he actually used to put a lot of spin on. I always remember walking with him. He was playing a practice round, I think, with Nick Price. And how much spin he put on his, on, on his, on his driver. You know, the ball would sort of pitch and then come backwards and it was like you know he was very steep on the ball and so you know and and it was like he was lacking control he said look if I'm going to win an open I've got to be able to control the ball and the wind you know so we went about it and so you know I had my ideas I mean the way I work with a swing I sort of look at the swing and sort of say look at a player and say okay this is how I think they should swing it. It's sort of, I create a model in my mind and work towards it. And so I just felt that, you know, he had the old sort of, you know, sort of swing out of the 60s, you know, high hands, big leg slide, reverse C finish, typical sort of of that era. And, um, but, you know, beautiful rhythm. I mean, that's something that we never changed, beautiful rhythm. And so we, we went about sort of trying to round the swing off and be able to sort of get the feeling that his body was more in control rather than his hands and his arms. And so he was able to, you know, it took a while. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he just was a perfectionist. And so it took a, you know, literally almost, because we actually figured out when we first started, said, listen, let's, let's make this a two-year project. And, and it was almost like just two years, almost two years of the month almost that we started because we started in May and then he won he won the Spanish Open in May and then he won the Open at Muirfield in uh, 1987 you know as we you know known well that he sort of had 18 pars to in his final round when he beat Paul Azinger and so yeah it was I mean that really it went you know look for two years I mean his name was Mud and my name was Mud uh, the fact that who's this guy screwing up our you know boy and and so, because, I mean, he did, he had some, you know, very poor results. He only just kept his card. I mean, he finished fifth, I think, in the last tournament of the year to keep his card for, for 1987. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, I mean, you know, he was losing sponsors, so I don't care. And he was driven. I mean, he was really, really driven. He was an ideal student, really. I mean, somebody whose sight was possessed to sort of become great. And so, you know, and then from 1987 onwards, well, the rest is history. And he, I mean, he was obviously a... He was a major factor. I mean, he was always looked upon as sort of the favourite to win the majors. And sort of, you know, they, he sort of had a bit of a you know, head-to-head run, obviously with Greg Norman and so on, and uh, which he came out on top many a time. I mean, from a pure talent and ball striker, you look at Greg Norman and say, man, he should have won 10 majors. He won two, but, but Nick won six majors and was just a, you know, just a precision player. I mean, just brilliant iron player, controlled his distances and, you know, obviously had a had a great short game when at his peak, a great putter, and uh, yeah, he never hit the ball. As I said earlier, he never hit the ball that far, but I mean, it was always controlled, you know. And you know, I mean, it was uh, it really sort of kickstarted my career. Even though Nick Price we started earlier, but the Nick, it was so well chronicled all the changes he was making and the things we were doing, and then when it came to fruition. I mean, it was like, okay, now now I'm a hero. I, you know, I went from zero to hero, and you know about you know. <laughs> during, during that one week at Muirfield, really. So, If you had a son that really was talented, what coach would you take him to, other than David Ledbetter? <laughs> uh, you know, um, that's a good question. I mean, look, yeah, Butch Harmon is a, is a really good coach. I mean, the thing with Butch, he doesn't really change people that much. He works with what they've got. And that's, that's really good for a, a, a lot of players because, you know, I mean, I think that sometimes you know, players trying to try to get too perfect, and especially now with you know with launch monitors and what have you, you can get 
you can get perfectionistic. And if you look at Butch, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, he worked with um, Phil Mickelson for about 10 years. And I mean, I don't think his swing changed one iota. You know, it, it's almost as if, you know, most of the players and then Dustin Johnson, I mean, Dustin Johnson still has the same look he had when he was 15. I mean, you know, and I, it, it's more what you could learn, you know, from a coach like him is that it's more, you know, working with what you've got and getting confidence in what you've got, you know, he'd slap you on the back, say, man, you're looking great. And, you know, and it really hasn't changed much at all. And so it's not like major swing changes. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I I, I'm of the ilk that, look, I don't try to change everybody just for the sake of changing them. You change them for a reason. You, know, you, add, you add some stuff in, you, you subtract some stuff out. Because I, I think there's a point, Dale, where, you know, players, they, I don't know, there's somewhere around the mm, maybe 25 to 30 age group where, where you, you're stuck with your DNA. You know, you, it's like trying to make big changes. We've seen players who try to do that. And have not been very successful in, in doing it. Uh, you know, they try to copy somebody, or they they figure this is a better way of doing it. And uh, but players, when they're younger, this you know, sixteen to whatever twenty-two age group, they're more malleable. You can change them. I mean, maybe their body hasn't even developed fully yet. So yeah, it's a it's a case of working with young players. I mean, uh, you know, I've got this young player who actually was formerly from Zimbabwe and played, now lives in the States, his name's Sean Crocker. And you're, you're going to see this kid, he's really a good, really good yeah, player. I, I mean, his dad, his dad played cricket for Zimbabwe and so on. We sort of just, I mean, basically, you just work with sort of fundamentals. And you really have to look at, say, as a coach, you have to look at the individual. You, you, I mean, some players want to be technical. Some players want to be feel. I mean, you know, like when I work with, you know, David Frost for so many years. I mean, it was very much a, a feel sort of situation and not, not trying to get too technical because some players, they get so tied up in technique, they, they can't even play. And so, you know, we know golf is a technical sport. And so, uh, so I, I, you know, probably Butch. And uh, I mean, I mean, even, a, a, you know, a, a, a coach of yesteryear who passed away, uh, whatever, just over a year ago, John Jacobs. I mean, you know, obviously you knew him well. I mean, no. it was very, very simple in his approach. And so, some, you know, I mean, worked with Elazabal and you know, many, many great players and just, you know, just one little thing you can say. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yes, I mean, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I'll go back to, uh, say, the player of yesteryear, Bobby Clampett. Okay, Bobby Clampett, he worked with a, a coach over here called Ben Doyle and they worked on a, on a, a fairly technical approach called the golf machine, which uh, people, yes. are, people are aware of. And, and so he grew up with that. I mean, he honestly worked with him from the age of six. And, you know, it was interesting when Nick should have, uh, should have won at uh, Troon, Bobby Clampett was leading by seven shots after two rounds. And so, but then he got blown out to sea when the wind came in and he decided that at that point, okay, he was going to change his swing. It wasn't going to work. And, you know, he knew, he knew his technique so well. And at, from that point on, he was never the same player. I mean, so sometimes you just got to, you know, you got to tweak what you've got. You know, I mean, I like that word. You know, Nick Faldo used to use it a lot. Okay, we're just tweaking. We're not, we're not making major changes. So sometimes you just got to tweak and, uh, you know, let the, use, use a player's natural talents and work around that without sort of trying to completely, you know, rechange the, the landscape. What was your biggest disappointment in terms of a player who you really thought, you know, was going to, was gonna, had it all, was going to do everything and just didn't do it? Uh, 
yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, with in coaching, look, it's it, it comes with a territory, right? That you you get players, you lose players, players come back, players. You know, it, it's it it is interesting how how that happens. But I mean, and you can't blame the players because they're always looking for that little extra edge, or they think maybe some somebody else has it. But probably my biggest disappointment, funny enough, although she's playing well now, it was this young lady Lydia Ko because uh, when she actually left me she was actually number one in the world so you know it's hard to sort of there's no infinity ranking unfortunately uh but uh you know so it was a it was a combination of things you know parents getting involved and one thing or another i mean she'd won i don't know 13 tournaments two majors in fact if you look at her career you know she actually had a better start to her career than tiger even you know with the with the amount right. of high finishes and wins and majors and so on so yeah, that was a disappointment. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that I, I look at that you think, wow, you know, you know, it's uh, probably not, not really. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, look, I've I've dabbled with a lot of players. I mean, when I look at sort of the the players through the years, so I've sort of helped periodically, shall we say? You know, you go from you know Greg Norman to Tom Watson to to Woozy to. I mean, there's a, a lot of players who I've sort of been involved with, you know, you wouldn't say necessarily, although I work with Greg Norman quite a lot, I mean, you wouldn't say, okay, he's my full-time student who I've sort of brought from this level to that level type of thing. So it's, you know, I mean, coaching, I mean, it's changed a lot over the years. I mean, I I think back, Dale, when when I was first out there, you know, with Nick and the boys um, and then subsequently Faldo, I mean, there weren't that many coaches around. I mean, there were a couple out here, people like Jimmy Ballard and Bob Toskey, and then you had John Jacobs in the UK and so on. But there really weren't that many full-time, what I would call, tour player coaches uh, who would travel around with players. And now it's, I mean, obviously, these people, these players travel almost with an entourage. You know, they've got a, a long game coach, a short game coach, a padding coach, you know, a physiologist, a mental coach. I mean, you know, it's. I mean, there's so much money in the game now that these players, you know, very much like tennis, really. I mean, tennis started it, I suppose, from an individual sports standpoint. But you know, golf is now very much the same way. So there's very few players out there now that don't have some form of coaching. I mean, there are not many Bubba Watsons out there who are sort of self-made, homemade type swingers of the club. So. It's uh, we we're in a technology world now, and you know I do a lot of I do a lot of my work actually over the internet. But it's it's interesting you know, with all the technology we have, TrackMan and force plates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, so, but still, it's 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 interesting. I mean, there are only tools that actually help us as coaches to get the message across, and that's that's the key. I mean, the key is being able to sort of put something in in, a, in such a way that the player actually gets it and they can feel the change and they can they understand the change because to me it's my goal really is always to make a player you know I do a lot of work now with Patrick Reed and Patrick you know he's a phenomenal phenomenal short game never never had the greatest long game but have has had some great results over the years and now we're sort of just trying to get to a point where okay we tidy up his long game to match his great short game and and if you get the two together I mean the guy's going to be sort of a world beater because I mean, I mean he's had some obviously won the masters etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's 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 interesting because players do resist change I mean habits come back as we all know golf is a game where you tend to revert back and so so it's really key for a coach to really explain to the player 
hey, these are the tendencies. These are what you've got to watch for. These are the things you've got to keep working on. And in the end, it's not rocket science. And, uh, you know, you don't continually change a golf swing. Well, you shouldn't do. I mean, once you've, once you've established the blueprint, you just keep at it. And uh, hopefully it all kicks into gear. How about from the point of view of, of a player who, who, just from a natural talent or from a talent point of view, you thought was going to be, yeah, you know, I think of Bobby Cole. And you obviously right. know Bobby Cole really well. You know, Bobby Cole was such a talented player. And you know, yes. never achieved anything close to what he should have achieved. What about what yeah. about somebody that you could mention that you worked with that was similar to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Coley obviously was a superb player. I think he just grew up in the wrong era, sort of in Gary's shadow, unfortunately. As you know, if you look over here, it was probably back in the day. It was probably Tom Weisskopf in Jack Nicklaus's shadow. So it's it's you know, it's a tough it's a tough situation for those type of players. And so, I mean, certainly had the talent and. I think, I mean, I, I probably look at, I mean, it sounds funny to say because he's had a really good career. I mean, I, I look at David Frost as being a very much an underachiever because Frosty, I mean, he, he, you know, he was, I mean, had some high finishes and majors certainly, but for a period of time, I mean, he was so consistent, so steady. I mean, a wonderful putter. I mean, if you've got that aspect uh, going, I mean, then you just got to figure out the ball strike. And, and it was interesting. I mean, in the early years with Frosty, he, he didn't know a whole heck of a lot about it, uh, what he was trying to do. He would just follow sort of the the guidelines that I would give him. And it was it really worked very successfully. And unfortunately with Frosty, he started to think about things a little bit too much. You know, sometimes when you when you overthink uh, and you start to try this and try that, and he started to delve into little different areas, he never was quite the same player. So you'd have to say he was very much an underachiever because he was always expected to sort of do do great things and say he's had a yeah had a, he's had a really great career don't get me wrong and had done really well on the champions tour now but i always look back at frosty think you know if only he should have won majors absolutely no question in my mind he should have won majors. he had the game for it you know i mean u.s open style player i mean didn't miss many fairways you know great iron player i mean superb putter you know he had all the ingredients and just you know something was lacking i mean as, as you know it's not easy to win out there especially you know, at the very highest level in majors. So uh, only a very few players do it. So it's a, that's why when you look at, you know, what Tiger has done and sort of just, you know, when you go back in the eras, right? I mean, the players that won multi-majors, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's quite something. And uh, it's, it's interesting when you look at certain players, they seem to get up for majors. You know, you think, of, you think of an Andy North, for instance, or a Lee Jansen who won two US Opens each, but then they didn't do, didn't do much in in other tournaments where other players, you know, they play well in regular tournaments when they come to majors, you know, the pressure gets to them. So while you mentioned Tiger, the greatest ever, Nicholas, Tiger. Yeah, that's always going to be Don't say Hogan. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, I mean, you know, that debate's going to be ongoing for many a year. I mean, obviously, if you just go by the record, then Jack's got it. I mean, you'd have to think, though, if Tiger hadn't had all the injuries and everything else has gone on in his life that he would have in in all probability surpassed uh, Jack's record. Uh, but, you know, having said that, he hasn't. And so, I mean, there's always issues that that crop up in players' lives and, you know, all sportsmen and all sportswomen for that matter, that something curtails their career in some form or shape. But I, I would say when you look at Tiger for that period of time, you know, the the 2000 to whatever, 2012, 2015, whatever it is, 
I mean, uh, I, nobody ever in the history of the game has played golf to that level. Absolutely no chance. I mean, you think in terms of one out of four tournaments, he was in, you know, top 10. I mean, it was, I mean, something, something ridiculous, some stat, which doesn't quite come to mind. But I mean, it, it's like just, just amazing the level of play that he was able to produce. And, you know, almost through willpower alone, you just think of when he won the US Open at Torrey Pines, yeah. Uh, when you basically play on one leg. I mean, just he just does, he just did things at times where, you know, hold these crucial putts, hit this unbelievable shot. Just, he, he was just a, a magician in many ways. So, yes, I mean, I say, I mean, still, I, I say many, many people, many pundits are going to say, no, Jack Nicholas is the greatest because of his record. Um, and, you know, Jack had some great players around him at the time as well. So it wasn't all, as if he was head and shoulders above everybody else. But, you know, Tiger, obviously, I mean, he had a lot of players who were, uh, I mean, the depth of play now compared to what it was a number of years ago is, is tremendous. Uh, I mean, you look at any tournament now, any player can go ahead and win. And, uh, I mean, there's, everybody says, well, you know, look at this player, look at that player. And, yes, but, I mean, on any given week, you get somebody who pops out, you know, pops your head out and wins it. And we're back in the, probably back in the day, there may be, I don't know, maybe 20 players that might, might've been able to win. Now it's like you know, it's 120 players that might be able to win. That's, that's the difference now. Going back Sorry, to I, those, those days in, in, in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, hmm. did you ever in your wildest dreams think that today David Ledbetter would be bringing out golfing gadgets, would have written, I think it's eight golf books, would hmm. have had golf academies all over the world, would have had a junior, a wonderful junior program. Did you ever think that could ever happen? No, you know, I, I, honestly, to be truthful, absolutely not. I mean, you know, in America here, it's everything about, oh, you've got to have a goal, you've got to be driven and what have you. And, you know, I, I never had anything like that. It was just like, you know, I just wanted to enjoy myself, it really embrace the profession that I was involved in. And it, it just sort of happened. I mean, it was just like maybe subconsciously I had these goals, you know, to be, you know, I, I never wanted to be the number one teacher or the number number one this, number one that. I mean, which I suppose, I don't know, was part of my upbringing. But, uh, you know, the it's, it's interesting. I mean, just so many things fell into place. I mean, I'm very grateful for the, the great players. I mean, look, I, you wouldn't have heard of David Ledbetter if I hadn't worked with some of the great players. I mean, look, there's some great teachers around who never got any recognition. So I, I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. And yeah, some luck, some skill. And But I had honestly no idea whatsoever. You know, I mean, my goal when living when I was living in Rhodesia or Zim was A, you know, to... Hey, let's see. If, let's see if I can become a, a great club professional. Let's see if I can become a great teacher. And so I just drove myself, and I was always interested. And and I think it's you. You have to, in this business, as you well know. Look, I mean, if you're a player, if you're a coach, you, you're a people person. I mean, essentially, you know, players now are entertaining um, people out there. I mean, through through their great golf. And from my standpoint, I mean, we're helping people to really enjoy this game we talk about you know the, your average weekend golfer i mean just hey get out and enjoy it i mean because it's such a great game you can you can play it for life you can play it with your grandkids it's, it's so you know I, i've always just i've always just tried to help people and so everything that's come with it has just been a real bonus to me i mean i had no idea you know my 
you know, I met my wife. She played on the tour for a number of years through through golf. And so, you know, our kids all play golf. We went to college and played golf over here. And so, you know, golf's been really good to me. I mean, it's and it's, it's been more than just a game. It's been a, it's been a lifestyle, really. And uh, it's something that I've just really loved every minute. I always tell people, look, I've never worked a day in my life. I mean, it's like I just get up every day thinking, okay, what are we going to do today? Maybe writing an article for Golf Digest or maybe going to do a corporate deal or maybe you're going to work with a tour player or maybe just work with some you know some golfer it's just like hey it's it's because it's a it's very reward it's always been rewarding for me to see other people improve and so and to get better and uh, be part of it you know it's, it's always been a thrill to me in that regard it's yeah it's brilliant it really is we're very fortunate let's talk about golf swings now you know there's so many beautiful golf swings over the years gene Litha, tom Pertzer. I mentioned Bobby Cole earlier. Of course, the great Sam Snead, Ben Hogan, Simon Hobday. Whose swings do you, do you really have, a, have in your mind when, when you think about great golf swings? Give me, give me two, two people. Two people. Okay, well, there's one probably that, you know, you'd be surprised at. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of surprises because actually, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the, the Sneeds and the Hogans and the Nicholas and the Faldos and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously, classic golf swing. I mean, and the results sort of speak for themselves. But the first one I, I'd look at probably is Calvin Pete. Okay, now people say, what is Calvin Pete? And I'd say, yeah, because he had one of the most repeatable golf swings in the history of the game. I mean, if you look at, I mean, he's, I mean, if, when they pretty much started statistics, statistics, Hollywood, so, uh, back in his day. And I think, I think the first three or four years he hit like, 85% of the fairways, which, as you know, I mean, which is incredible. Look, he wasn't out for long. We know that. I mean, yeah. And, uh, I mean, he was a great iron player. And, uh, I mean, he wasn't a particularly good putter. And this is the guy that took up the game at the age of 23. And so, I mean, and, uh, I mean, he's quite a character. You know, he had a, a diamond in his front tooth. And so, he, I mean, he was one of nine children. I mean, his family were... I mean, I think they were, I mean, they worked in the orange picking business, if I, if I remember correctly, you know, and so, I mean, the guy worked, worked himself up from nothing. And so, and I actually, you know, I brought a book out, you know, not so long ago, maybe three years ago, called The Ace Wing, and it was sort of somewhat based on his type of style, if you will. I mean, you know, I always look at a Nick Price, who sort of got the club pretty steep going back and then shallowed it onto a perfect plane coming down. And I, I've always liked this sort of, steep to shallow look and you know calvin pete was at the, really exaggerated i mean you can look at probably uh jim fury probably in the same regard because for many amateurs to get the club on that plane coming down will eliminate any sort of slice i mean most amateurs are the exact opposite they're flat going back and steep coming down so we we called it the ace wing it was just for want of a, a better term uh and so you know tiger always talked about his a game etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know, from a repeatability, I mean, you, you look at players, I mean, and, and you know, just in the same, uh, I'll, 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 I'll give me three. I would say, I would say Fred Couples. I mean, you look how long that guy's swing has actually lasted. I mean, in the distance that he hits, hits it. And, you know, he's 60 now. And so it, it's, I mean, you just look at longevity in golf swings and repeatability. So, I mean, everybody has a different take on a swing, you know, if it's, if it's picture perfect, you know, okay, you mentioned Tom Pertzer, yeah. 
absolutely pretty golf swing and uh, Gene Littler, the rhythm and so on and so forth. And so my, my other my other choice was actually the great Canadian player, George Knudsen. Now, George Knudsen was uh, very underrated. He had some, you know, some sort of personal issues, I suppose you could call it. I won't go into any more detail than that. But he, I mean, he what a, what a ball striker this guy was. I mean, seriously, he was, uh, I mean, if you speak to, you speak to, players of that era you know people talk about George Knudsen like whoa I mean this guy was some serious a serious swing of the club great rhythm also sort of a steeper to shallower type look in actual fact but uh, magnificent player and um, probably never you know once again as with many players when we talk spoke about Bobby Cole never really fulfilled his great potential that he had. Earlier in, in, in our chat you spoke about how important communication was and mm. you know, needed the need to get through to people to make them understand what you're trying to tell them. And obviously, that's something that you excel at. That that is the reason for your success. I, I think we can safely say that. I want you to I want you to chat to me about that a little bit, and then I want you to give me a tip. One tip for a twenty handicap. One tip for a ten handicap, and one tip for a scratch golfer. Okay. All right. All right. I'll rack my brain. I'm sure we can come up with a couple. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, the first question being what now? It's like, it's, repeat. Sorry. You know, when you get to my age. Communication. Communication. How, communication. how you've been able, how you're able to hone your communication skills to be able to get through to so many different types of people. Yeah. You know, communication, obviously, we, we, we talk about it sort of verbalizing things in different ways. Uh, saying maybe you can say the same thing in, in a different way to a different player and they might get they'll get the message and it, it really is i mean the verbalizing is obviously the big key but also not only that Dale, it's like you know if you're able to sort of get somebody to sense what they're trying to do in the swing and I, i've always been a big believer in fact i did a I did a, a, a tape years ago with uh, Nick Price on drills, essentially. And I, I've always been a big believer in, look, if you want to get the message across somebody, somebody has to have, yes, they have to have an understanding and communicate to them, but that's not the only way. You've got to, you've got to do it by feel. Ultimately, a player, when he's playing, is not, hopefully, not overthinking about what he's trying to do. They might have a key or a sort of a sensation, an awareness, but it, it's a feel. And, I mean... You know, just a funny story. I mean, I always, I hate hearing players talk about, uh, you know, why are you playing so well? Well, I've been working on this, this, and this with my coach. And, and especially with putting, you know, you see somebody's putting, that means putting great. Yeah, well, I'm actually, I'm working on getting the putter working a little bit more around me, you know, more, more than off or whatever the case may be. And you can, you can bet your bottom dollar the next day that player's probably not going to play well because it becomes, becomes more conscious instead of subliminal. And that's really, golf is a subliminal game in many ways. You have, you have this feel and this sensation. I always remember speaking to the great Byron Nelson and I said, Mr. Nelson, I said, you know, when you won 11 tournaments in a row, which you did in 1947, uh, I said, what, what was going on? Did you practice much? He said, you know, David, he said, I hardly hit a ball. I warmed up because obviously that's, that's key. But I didn't want to practice in case I lost the feel. I, I had this feeling about what I was trying to do. And it was like it was just week after week after week. Now, normally it doesn't last that long, those feelings, as we know. You've got to find a new feel. And that really is my job as a coach. When I was out, even with uh, you know, with Nick Faldo, I have to call him Sir Nick now, right? Uh, but when <laughs> when uh, when I was out with Nick, 
uh, I mean, everybody thought, oh, it's so, it's so technical. It wasn't. We actually, you know, with, here, here's a key that a lot of people don't know. You see, Nick Fowler was, he, he had all these sensory systems working. I could never figure out which was as strong, was it? When he verbalized things, when he felt things, when he saw things, when he heard things. I mean, it was like, because you always heard him kicking, going, and making funny noises and stuff. And so I'd find one or two, normally two, uh, occasionally four little fields. Okay, so I'll give you an example, right? Okay, sit, okay, which was like sort of sitting into his right knee. Sit, sit, coil, pull and release. Sit, coil, pull and release. And he'd actually, he'd, he'd mind these to himself. You'd see him sit, coil, pull and release. So, so it wasn't like it was conscious, but it was like a, he worked it into his rhythm. And so that was my job really at Thomas to find those sort of magic words that he would, he was able to play with. So, you know, communicating and feel is just as important as communicating uh, in words. Uh, so, so the drills, the exercises and so on and so forth, I mean, they, they, they really do help. And so it's, 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 you know, I remember when I was working with Greg Norman, we did a drill where his left foot was, pulled back, we closed the stance off with his feet. He, he loved that. He loved that exercise. Two, two drills. In fact, one of them I'll actually talk about with a 20 handicap in a minute, but so not that Greg was a 20 handicapper, obviously, but the thing <laughs> is we, we, we worked on this closed stance drill and enabled him to really sort of release his right side. So not, not that, not the hips or the shoulders closed, just the feet. And it was a way of being able to sort of really get his right side releasing through the ball. So, Greg didn't particularly like drills, but you know one or two we actually got him to do. But uh, so in the end, as say you, you as a coach, you have to figure out: okay, is this person more kinesthetic? In other words, feel oriented. Is this person more? Can, can I get through to him verbally? Because if you just yak in there, you, you know, ninety percent of it will go right over his head. So, but if you actually get a feel going, and or maybe you sort of you mimic what he's trying to do, you get him in a mirror because he's a visual person. You know, I mean, a lot of times a player like that, I'll who's very visual, I get them to make a perfect practice swing on video and say, okay, let's have a look at this now. And it's amazing. You know, I mean, obviously we know swings are different when when there isn't a ball in front of them, but, uh, but the fact that they're actually able to recoup that vision, that image of what they're trying to do can really help. So it's, it's really sort of horses for courses. You've got to really direct your, your coaching, your teaching. It's more, it's more than just knowing the mechanics of the swing. I mean, the mechanics of the swing are, yeah, there's a lot. There's there's a lot going on. We know it's a you know it's a very complex movement, which which good players make look very simple. But uh, the fact is, you know, you can't you can't get into all the bits and pieces. I mean, we we've seen players who've tied themselves up in knots, and you know, then they go and visit a sports psychologist or something, and uh, you know, the sports psychologist says, "Hey, I want you to forget about everything. I just want you to smile and go out and they play well." You know, but so this game is constantly testing players is constantly testing coaches and sometimes you have to come up with something even though it's the same you have to make it slightly different and so the player thinks oh okay yeah I, I can I can understand that meanwhile you're saying exactly the same thing many times I've worked with players and I I understand that hey if it comes from them rather than from me and you sort of say something in a way that so so what do you feel there okay well, it really feels like I'm actually moving off the ball. Okay, so that's a great feel. Okay, go for it. And it's like, so they come up with it and it's like, they're, you know, they're, they're proud of, they're really proud of the fact that they came up with it. But, but meanwhile, I've actually, I've sort of eked it out of them, you know? So, so it's interesting, you know? 
Yeah, right. it's, very, it's, it's fascinating when you work, you know, everybody's different. I mean, there's no, you know, that's why I say technology is great, but you can't pigeonhole everything and say, okay, well, you know, you need to be, you need to zero out on track man here. Well, that's not necessarily the case, you know. I mean, w- the way we use technology, the way I use it now is like, I'll, I will take, I will take, get all the, all the, the data from before they, maybe before, before we work with them in, to any great any greater degree and so we'll see okay we've got trackman numbers we've got force plate numbers and then i'll work with them and actually and then afterwards we'll, we'll sort of do the after and say okay we well, see how things are different i don't let technology completely guide me i use my instincts a lot i mean uh, some a friend of mine is a biomechanist said david you're very lucky you have biomechanical eyes so it, it, you know my grandfather was one of britain's leading osteopaths and he was blind and he sort of had a feel for these things so you you know, there's some things, I mean, I, I have, we've got a great coaching program teaching teachers, you know, we have actually the Ledbetter University. I never went to university, so I actually have one now, so that's strange. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we train coaches, you know, we have over a hundred and whatever odd coaches around the world, and, and it's, it's not easy. They can't teach like David Ledbetter. They can get the rudiments and the fundamentals, but there's a lot of instinct in teaching and coaching and sort of, and you know, some people you have to be harsh with some people you've got to put an arm around them. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting when you're dealing with sort of human nature. Right now a tip for a 20 handicap. Okay. 20 handicap. You know, the, the big key for most golfers, for most golfers, okay. Where, where most problems start is in the very initial stages of the swing. And so I would say for a 20 handicap golfer, okay, I'm going to give them one tip here because Virtually every 20 handicap golfer, the reason why they're 20 handicap for the most part, and especially if they slice, is that is the grip. And if you look at the grip for a lot of players, any time a player wears out a, a hole in their glove, okay, in the heel pad, you can rest, be rest assured that that club is too high in the palm. So essentially, you've got to move that club down. It's got to be at a slight angle, sort of a diagonal, uh, sort of a diagonal angle. It's not straight through the palm. But basically, you've got to hook the club through your forefinger and let it run up just beneath the pinky finger. You've got to have, it's got to be down more towards the fingers. If you get it, you grab it in the palm there. First of all, it creates a whole lot of tension that you don't need. And secondly, it's very hard to actually get your wrist action working correctly. And so people snatch the club away. They do all sorts of things just because of that grip. So you want to say, get the club more down towards the fingers, not purely in the fingers. It's actually, I say, just that little pad just, just above the pinky finger, it lies through that and then through the forefinger. And I say, if, you, say, if you're wearing a hole out in your glove, I mean, uh, say in that heel pad, you could be rest assured you have this problem. And I say, so many golfers have this issue. It's, a, it's probably the most common fault, I would say, in golf. So get that left for a right-handed golfer. Get that left-hand grip correct. Ten handicap. So a 10 handicap, um, I think the flow and the rhythm is the key here. So to me, uh, I, I love the exercise where somebody starts the club about two feet or you know, a meter or whatever whatever uh, metric you want to use there. Uh, you know, I'd say just, just less than a meter, half a meter or so ahead of the ball. Okay, so you start at the head of the ball. You think in tennis when somebody's serving, they sort of move forward and they move backwards. The problem with golf is that we're sort of very static. And so, you know, people talk about a waggle and this and that. But it's like they, you've got to have that flow going from the start. And the nice thing about starting a couple of feet ahead of the ball, obviously, 
you've got to hold the club slightly off the ground so you don't hit the ball on as you sweep it away. But what that does, it, it sort of connects and engages your body with the hands and the arms. You know, most players tend to just take the club back with the hands and arms. It's you know, the club's light, essentially. It's, you know, it does weighs half a kilo. So, I mean, it's not that heavy. But the problem is, is that people sort of work it away as if it's a sledgehammer. So you start forward of the ball and they say, just let the club flow. And it's, ama- it's an amazing, uh, that, that was actually one of the other drills that Greg Norman liked. He started forward and then he swung it back. It just gets you into a flow and a rhythm because there's no, look, I mean, yes. I mean, not everybody puts the club in perfect positions, but if you can flow from start to finish, it really helps. So, that's an exercise. I mean, I've had people even play that way because they get so stuck over the ball. They can't get the club away and it's tension in the shoulders and the forearms and the neck. And this way, it's like, hey, you know, it's like I can flow it away. And it's like the club almost swings on its own. You know, it's that, you know, the old saying, Ernest Jones, you know, let the club do the work. That's exactly what happens when you do that. And finally, a scratch golfer. Okay, scratch golfer. I mean, look, we know that, the reason the players are scratch golfers because you've got a lot of he or she got a lot of good things going in their in their in their swing. It may be idiosyncratic. It may you know may have a few quirks here, but they compensate well. I think the big key really is the way you come into impact. Okay, the the fact is that if you look at if you look at the greats, I mean there is a there is a certain look that players have. It's a it's a synchronized look where the arms and the body are working nicely in unison. I think what happens a lot of times with really good players, they get out of sync. And one of the drills that I like to use in order to sort of get this pre-impact or delivery position right is actually hitting wedges with a towel under your arms. Because this really connects the arms and the body and gets this, what I call the synchronization uh, between the two components. One is your arm, one is your body. And so you can hit, you know, you can hit three-quarter wedges like that, but it's a great way of, Making sure, say, that your body's involved, that your your hand action's involved, and you really sync it up. So syncing it up, I mean, not only does that exercise actually help your wedge play because you learn to control the speed with the, the speed of your body rotation, but it really does help you, you know, there was Jimmy Ballard had a, a, a term or a word, connection, and it really is a connection or a, a linkage, as I like to call it, where you link your arms and your body together. So when you start to move, when you when you start to come into impact, now all of a sudden now you've got the right metrics where it's like you know you're not slipping early, you're not you're not getting the club too far behind you, you get the club's nicely in front of you there, and you really, I mean, and Nick Faldo put it really put it really well back in the day because he always felt when he hit his best shots, he was hitting the ball with his chest, and so I mean that's a funny thing to say because you think well why would you hit it with your chest? Well, it means that the chest is continually moving all the way to the finish. So instead of, you know, if you look at a, a good players, a lot of times the chest stalls in order to get the club to impact. But if your chest keeps moving and the club's with you, you know, it, it's hard to hit too many offline shots. David, you're a champion. Thank you very, very much. Really oh, appreciate it. No problem, man. So what was the story you were going to tell me? I'm, I'm, I'm well, all ears. You know, my, my dad was... Um, the professional at, at Swatcook Country yeah. Club for 56 yeah. years. Yeah. I and know that. We, we now own the club. And right. my brother, my brother now has been here for 52 years, but that's uh, by and by. My, my dad, uh, about 20 years ago, in fact, it's almost exactly 20 years ago, my dad was on his deathbed and I went to visit him in hospital. And uh, I walked in and he was lying there and I, 
I said, how are you doing? He said, no, he said, I think the end is near. And you know, what do you say? So I said to him, I said, dad, geez, but you've had a great life, eh? He said, Dale, I've had the best, eh? He said, you know, the only thing I would change is that bloody 17th hole at his London golf club. <laughs> what had happened was in 1954 at his right. London, he needed to finish 3-3 to tie for the South African Open. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he made, and he made five on the 17th. And that's oh. what he remembered on his deathbed. But really? Just, uh, every time I get a bit down in the dumps and stuff like that, I think to myself, boy, to be involved in golf, how lucky we are. When yeah, that can be I mean, it never happened to you. Yeah, there you uh, are on your deathbed, and you know golf is still a, a major factor in 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 your life. I mean, uh, yeah, it is. That's that's what the game does. I mean, it's 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 oh. fascinating, really. I don't. There's no other sport or pastime like golf. I mean, there's so many entities attached to it. There's so many characters attached to it, and you know. And I say, hey, just uh, it's always always great listening to you and on on commentary and you know Sun City and what have you. So uh, keep up the great work, man, and uh, right. always. Always enjoyed, always enjoyed watching you. I was, uh, I always remember. I actually, uh, I was playing that Italian Open that you won in Sardinia, where I think, I think I ran out of ball. I think I ran out of balls there. <laughs> Listen, I got talking about that. I got another story for you. Bulawayo Golf Club. Mm-hmm. You know, my brother, my brother ended up in the pro there, but he, he got picked sure. on the South African team, yeah. and he and a guy called Barry Franklin and Reg Taylor yeah. and all these guys went up in those days to Northern and Southern Rhodesia. We're talking right. 1963, 64, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. The phone rings at my house. I'm 11 years old or something. And the phone rings. And now we all run to the phone because we think it might be him. And my dad, my dad takes the phone. and Hi, John, how are you? And, and uh, where are you? Oh, Bulawayo, my dad says. He says, you didn't happen to notice who holds the course record at Bulawayo Golf Club. So John says, yes, I did. You used to hold it. My dad said, what do you mean I used to hold it? He said, well, I just broke it today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great story. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, that's the thing about it. Isn't it? I mean, we've got so many great stories to tell. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, we're of that era, you know. I mean, I just, you know, I always remember when Hobday came down from Zambia oh. and he had, he had nothing. You know, him and Len Castagnani, remember that name? Yeah, so, of course I did. Yeah, so uh, you know they 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 were both booted out of the country, and so you know, and so it was. I mean, it was probably fortunate for Simon because he actually started his professional career at the age of thirty, you know, which he should have done much earlier, turned pro much earlier. But uh, yeah, but anyway, great guy. Well, from one very special Zimbabwean to another, because on the next episode of the Long and the Short of It, brought to you by Blair Athel, we speak. To Dennis Hutchinson and Dale, this is another guy that you know very well. You've grown up with Dennis. Well, Hutchie, I mean, he's he's just, I can't explain what a great friend he's been to myself and my family for so many, many years. He talks about first meeting me when I was six months old. So literally, I've known him all my life. And he's done so much for South African golf. You know, he is he's the voice of golf in South Africa. He's the voice of golf in many countries in the world. If you travel with Hutchie to England and to parts of America and people walk up and say, hang on, I know that voice. Then you say, do you, do you follow golf? That's right. It's a golf channel or that's right. It's Sky TV or whatever it might be. And he's just the most wonderful human being. I can't say enough about him. He's our guest on the next episode of The Long and the Short of It. 
This episode of The Long and the Short of It was brought to you by Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate. For access to an unparalleled living experience, visit blairathol.co.za and make an appointment to take the first steps in realizing your dream home. Blair Athol offers the ultimate in secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit blairathol.co.za and take those first steps? Come home to Blair Athol. An unparalleled living experience. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.